Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing some of the readings for Advent 3, focusing particularly on John 1, 6-8, the Magnificat, Luke 1, 46-55, and Isaiah 61, 1-4 and 8-11. With me today, I have three poignant and talented guests. The Reverend Canon, Dr. Anna Carmichael, is the Canon to the Ordinary in the Episcopal Diocese of San Joaquin. She is committed to social justice through her work with the Diocesan Immigration and the Anti-Racism Commissions. Rowan Larson, pronouns they, them, is the Missioner for Christian Formation and Parish Administrator at Grace Episcopal Church in Newton, Massachusetts, and they are a candidate for ordination in the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts. And last but not least, Father Jerry is the People's Priest, based in Houston, Texas. He is called to a ministry of protest, praise, and community organizing. Welcome, everyone. So I just want to go around first and ask each of you, uh, what's important to keep in mind uh, during Advent, especially this year? And Let's start with Anna. Thank you, Shaniqua. I think the important things to keep in mind this year is that, uh, you know, we've been living in this time of quarantine and distancing and being apart from one another. And that um, because of that, and then also because of uh, political and civil unrest that we have experienced in our country, um, it's very easy to either feel hopeless or um, feign hope. And um, neither is particularly helpful uh, for our parishioners. And um, so I think part of what we need to keep in mind this Advent is um, to, to find ways to connect um, and to inspire and to grieve and to feel a sense of hope that is actually rooted in our integrity um, and isn't just a happy face for the sake of a happy face because we're approaching Christmas. Awesome. Thank you. Rowan? I mean, Advent is a penitential season, which is something that a lot of folks forget or overlook because capitalist Christmas is infectious. But it's a time of preparation. And I think this year, more than any other, it really feels like it. I'm convinced that Lent never really ended. And I, I was in my church's sanctuary yesterday, and it still says Lent 2 on mm. the hymn boards. And I my, my heart broke. <laughs> um, and it, this year, just feel more, more than usual feels like a year where Joy is a little more out of reach than it usually is. That we're in a time of lament. We're in a time of, you know, we're in a time where certain parts of the story that we tell over Advent are going to 
resonate more than others and that that's okay. We don't have to do the Christmas pageant that we have done every year for 50 years. Like this is the year to cut back, to change, to, you know, reevaluate how the story is speaking to us. Mm. Thank you. Father Jerry? I think, uh, I typically think of Advent as like a, um, a spiritual season of finding Waldo. Um, it's like, I always wonder about how is it that we are taking this time to find how Christ um, is being birthed into this uh, current reality. And um, so for me, I'm often thinking of, uh, in the midst of Advent, of, okay, how am I being present to Christ manifesting before me? Um, particularly in the messiness of life, um, the disruptive parts of life. I think Christ's birth was a dramatic uh, confrontation of all that is the antithesis of the, um, of the Christ principle, violence, war, racism, white supremacy. Um, all those are the, the opposite of the, of the Christ consciousness or the Christ principle. So when I uh, go through the season of Advent, I'm always wondering how is Christ and that, and that understanding of Christ manifesting. So what messages do our congregations really need to hear this year? And some of you have sort of alluded to some of those. But. I come at this from a children and youth perspective because that is what I do. I minister to children and youth and their families. And one of my favorite things working with children is listening to them and letting them tell me the stories they think they know and seeing what comes out. My kids are super taken by the Herod part of the story and the soldiers and killing baby boys who weren't what Herod wanted. And I think they just are so steeped in the violence of our white supremacist New England world that it's it's bled into the way that they experience faith in God's love. Hmm. And I, I would encourage letting adults also think about what parts of the story speak to them. Kids are a little more honest. They'll just tell me when I'm wrong or when they think I'm wrong. Um, yeah, my, my toughest performance reviews are from fourth graders. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm used to listening to them and you know, taking them seriously. Hmm. But these are stories that, for most of the adults in our parish, they have heard every year for as long as they can remember. But ask them, what stands out this year? Why? Why are you relating to that part of the story? I would ask my kids, I, I wonder why Herod features so prominently in your telling of the nativity. Um, what What is it? What are the ways that the outside world is seeping in to what we like to think of as this insular church world. And what are the ways that our church world can actually go back out the doors and meet the world where it is? One of the things I'm thinking about um, in terms of, of this Advent and Christmas season is, do we believe that God is going to uphold God's promises because we've lived in a year where 
at least for me, I've sometimes wondered, is God even in this? Like, Mm. how can God be in the midst of a pandemic? How can God be in the midst of white supremacy and the ongoing murder of black and brown people in our community, right? So when we hear the prophets speak and when we hear Mary's song, do we really believe it? I mean, that may have been a question for, for some of us for years anyway, because of our own personal life circumstances, you know, um, but this year in particular, do we believe these things? And if so, how do we hold on to that hope um, in the midst of what feels like a never ending hopeless situation? And is it okay to not be 100% convinced? You know, what does that mean for us as a, as a people of faith if we say, I'm not sure I actually believe this stuff right now? Absolutely. Yeah, I relate a lot to that. I think, uh, you know, I'm really reflecting a lot, especially during this pandemic um, and this ongoing chaos that we're living in, which I use that word chaos. But I don't I don't think it's a negative word. Um, I think it's a very beautiful word. But going through this idea of growing beyond belief in the birthing of Christ into our world, into our midst, um, I, I, you know, I, it, it begets the question for me, when Christ is born, or when Christ is being uh, born into this world, being birthed into this world, um, is it going to be, is that Christ going to be a Christ that shows up with me in the midst of everything? Am I going to be able to experience a Christ that, that is with me when I'm locked down to a pipeline? Or when I jump in the middle of a, um, of a police scruffle because I don't want another black person being murdered. So I, I like Canon Anna's uh, question of, is it okay for me not to believe this right now? Because there are times where I'm like, you know, I really don't believe that what we claim, some of the things that we claim, you know, on Sunday morning when we're professing the creed, I don't, sometimes I don't really believe it. Um, and I think part of one of the things about Advent that that I find solace in is I feel like Advent really is a time of uh, leaning into experiencing um, Christ, experiencing like learning into learning how to believe. I guess is, is another way of saying it. Hmm. Sometimes I think about. Um... You know, in Lakota culture, we we have this thing we call going to sit on the hill or hamblecha, crying for a vision. And I think of like Lent and Advent as one of those times where it's really about getting in touch with yourself and um, crying for a vision, trying to figure out where we are in this world and where we're called to be going, both individually and collectively. Um, and then sometimes we hear it kind of like Mary heard um, the angel telling her the story about what was going to happen in the Magnificat. And so I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about that. Um what implications do you think the Magnificat has for, um, especially those of us, or in the Episcopal Church, we have a lot of privilege, right? We're like 90% white, and um, that may be shifting. But what do you think, uh, what implications does the Magnificat bring to us? I mean, the Magnificat is the reason that I have to believe. My entire personal theology is built on, you know, these 12 lines of scripture, this song of 
really of revolt and of turning the world upside down. Um, I was I was raised Roman Catholic, and Mary has always had a very central role in my faith life from the time that I was very young. And I'm actually looking at my desk now. I have a uh, a Japanese Madonna and Child um, looking at me next to the computer screen, and. I love the Magnificat. I'm wearing my Magnificat t-shirt. Like I live this all year long. And Advent is the time that I get reminded every year that these things are still true. Mm. I I have some privilege as a white person. I do not have privilege in other ways. I'm a non-binary trans person. I'm queer. I have a disability, an invisible disability. And there you know, those, those intersecting identities mean that for me right now, looking out into the world is terrifying. Uh, my, my personal timeline, like <laughs> it's real hard for me to be sitting with y'all thinking about Advent right now, because after October 31st is a black hole of, I just can't even imagine without spiraling into utter despair and hopelessness. But it's comforting to me to know that on the other side of October 31st is Advent and is the Magnificat and is the incarnation and this tiny little candle flame flicker of maybe something can change. Maybe the world order doesn't have to be the way that it is forever. I mean, we've been working on it for 2000 years, but humans are slow learners. You know, maybe we'll get there eventually, but I, (laughs) I have to believe, I have to believe that um, it's it's very hard to face living without believing that there's some kind of hope. Mm. And Rowan, I appreciate um, what you said about, you know, that, that you're so deeply rooted in uh, Mary and that the theology behind the Magnificat is what you hang your hat on. Um, I, I've spent most of my adult life engaging with Mary and, and have developed a special relationship with her. Um, for me, the Magnificat is that song of liberation, but where I wrestle with it, um, because it, it too is, is much of what I hang my theological hat on. Um, what I wrestle with though is, for a predominantly white, if not all white congregation hearing this, um, you know, how do we talk about liberation with people who are typically the ones who hold all the power, you know, whether that's because of their uh, racial and ethnic identity or their gender identity or, or what have you, or economic uh, standing in the community. Um, and so sometimes I feel like the real revolutionary aspect of the Magnificat gets lost. Um, And that, that, you know, people imagine this, you know, humble, yes, obedient, yes, but also not powerful woman in her own right. Um, You know, just sort of being subservient and, and pious and, and I'm not saying that Mary 
wasn't pious or <laughs> uh, obedient or anything like that, but she was powerful in and of her, her own identity. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, do, do our predominantly white congregations hear that power? You know, can they embrace it? Do they hear it as a critique of their, their being the people who uh, perhaps have been scattered um, instead of being those who need to hear that uh, the proud have been scattered, right? Mm. Yeah. I mean, Jesus calls us to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, but the comfortable are the ones who are you know, paying us to talk to them <laughs> right? where it gets complicated. Right. You know, and, and when we say, you know, that God has cast down the mighty from their thrones, well, what if we're preaching to the mighty, you know, um, they don't want to hear this. This is not good news for them. This is like, holy crap news for them. And, um, and so I really wrestle with that. And I think maybe, maybe now is the time that, that are people who have privilege need to hear this and need to find where they are in this and that they are not necessarily um, the hungry and the poor in this story, which is where we like to position ourselves, mm-hmm. right? We always like to position ourselves as being the ones who need to be liberated and, and all of that. But um, the fact is, is maybe this is our opportunity to, to say, guess what folks, <laughs> Uh, be prepared, you know, um, and and you may be sent away empty this time. That's scary stuff. That's really scary stuff for people who are in the dominant culture. So I, I wonder how we can help those people, how we can help those people find the good news for them in this. Like I said, I hold some privileged identities because I am white, because of the color of my skin. And I've spent a lot of time wrestling with knowing that in a lot of ways, I am the one who's being sent away empty. But I still find good news in it, because it speaks to me of the promises that God made us in the revelation to John, where one day we are going to have a world where no one is hungry, where there's nobody who needs to be lifted up because everybody is lifted up. But shifting from that individualistic, but what if I'm sent away to, but what if we're all lifted up and welcomed is really hard. And it's not the work of one Advent. Like this is, this is like my 10 year preaching plan of (laughs) how do I bring this good news in my community? This made me think of the um, what you just said, Rowan. Actually, like um, in Lakota culture, our our wealth is not not we judge wealth based on how much you give away, not by how much you have, which is a totally kind of a shift in how we think about it. And I, of course, I always mention that when it's uh, comes stewardship time. <laughs> but um, but what I what I was thinking about was kind of like you know if if we sort of followed that model or if if you wouldn't have to worry about being the privileged and being brought down low if you were closer in relation with everybody else in terms of how folks were living or if you took the time to bring folks up um then you wouldn't have to worry about that happening do you and i just i was thinking about that amen mm-hmm. so what do you think um how do you think mary felt when Gabriel came in and said all this, I'm like, if someone told me I had to be an unwed mother, I would kind of have a, a cow. I mean, 
that's not the word I would be using, but I'm sure I would have a lot to think about and say about it. Well, my first initial thought when I ever I read that passage is, you know, I wonder if how scared Mary was and was she scared? Because um, I know that if some supernatural or Peter natural, depending if you believe in Thomas Aquinas' teaching about angels, um, uh, if one of the, if a being like that showed up in my room and I was what thirteen years old and I was told I was going to carry a child, uh, I would be like, "What was I smoking?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh my lord!" Um, so I, you know, I wonder, like, did Mary have that reaction? Because we get this idea of like, "Oh, this this great being came into her room." While you know, like the old uh, Middle East, uh, Middle uh, Middle Ages, like iconography of her shows that she's praying, like her book, she's being like what Anna says, she's being very pious and everything like that. And then all of a sudden, this great glorifying figure comes in and says, "You're gonna bear a child, even though you've never been with a man before." Like that—that that seems a little terrifying to me. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, because then I, I'm like maybe this is just the way my brain works. I would be like, okay, well, well, A, who's going to take care of me because I'm going to need some assistance. Two, who's going to pay my bills because that's giving birth is not cheap. Um, and um, who's going to rub my feet? <laughs> uh, like, I would have a whole list. I'd be like, okay, Gabriel, here, take this to God and be like, if God can fulfill this, I'm down. Um, but Mary is like, I humbly accept which is not how I would respond. Um, so that's my first initial um, rundown of this scenario. Um, yeah, so those are my initial thoughts. It sounds to me sometimes, like you know that feeling when you're on a roller coaster and you are absolutely about to pee your pants terrified and it circles like, circles around and through to transcendent joy that is also really scary because you were terrified a minute ago and now feelings are a lot. And I wonder if that was playing a role in Mary's response to go from terror and uncertainty to what ends up being like the great, proclamation of good news is it could just be the reaction of like i am scared out of my mind and out of my wits and maybe this will help it make sense Mm. so i agree with everything that's been said already and i'm not sure i could illuminate that anymore but when i think about uh gabriel's visitation the annunciation to mary Um, The image that comes up for me is actually a more modern image. There's this um, icon, if you will, or painting uh, of Mary uh, kind of in a Catholic schoolgirl's outfit. And she's like 13 and um, she's she's arriving home from school and it's kind of set in this like suburbs area. And Gabriel's like in a 1950s businessman, you know, think Mad Men kind of suit, um, delivering this message to her, right? And so when I put that image in my mind uh, and think about her reaction and response, um, it's 
it's terrifying, but it's like on a different level almost. Um, like in a, in a personal safety terror sort of way, like who, who is this person that's telling me this stuff or who is this entity that is telling me stuff? Can I trust them? Can I believe them? Um, or is this like stranger danger, you know? And, um, so I feel like, like she says yes. Right. And we're all really grateful because like what would have happened if she had said no, um, (laughs) but she says yes, but I, I, I feel like it's almost, well, I wonder if it's almost like a coerced, did she really give consent? Mm -hmm. And if you read some strains of feminist theology, Mm. there's a lot of talk about consent around this. And um, so maybe I'm taking us down a rabbit hole. We don't want to go in because that can be scary for people. Um, It's easier to think of her just very politely being obedient and pious, um, but it leaves a lot. Uh, I think, you know, you have to consider who is the reader and what other life experiences have they had when you approach that part of the text. It's a good question. Things to think about. I think sometimes is, you know, and a lot of other, like in Lakota culture, we have a, a virgin birth story. It's about something different, but, um, in our case, she swallowed a stone and became pregnant. And I'd be like, I'm try telling that to your uh, parents or something, but you have to tell them you're pregnant. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that would work, but I think sometimes it's so often like, you know, you have those experiences where the Holy Spirit just kind of yanks you. And um, almost like, you know, when you're like Rowan was saying at the top of the roller coaster, just before you go over that, like really steep, steep fall it's like you know what's gonna happen and maybe you thought you were ready and then it's just gonna happen and (laughs) whether you like it or not you're gonna be ready and it's gonna happen i almost wonder if it's that combination of the two right like maybe initially you thought it was okay and then later you sort of have have doubts and we have to remember that you know none of the descriptions of angels in the bible are what's in renaissance painting the descriptions of angels in the bible are terrifying They are covered in hundreds of eyes and have six wings and feet that can walk on fire. Like they're bananas scary. And I I think a large part of Joseph getting on board with this plan had a lot to do with him also being terrified by whatever it is that showed up and came to have a talk with him. Uh, And I, I don't, I can't imagine Gabriel as this like nice blue-eyed blonde hair, you know, white man with wings that's always painted. I think that there was something monstrous about Gabriel and about angels in general. Um, And it's hard to separate our images of iconography from the text and from the intent and you know, in some ways, the, iconic, the iconoclast strains of Christianity, I think, are doing themselves a favor because you can really remember that whatever being it is that showed up to Mary probably went beyond scared and terrified to like existential horror. So what suggestions do you have for preaching this text? I'll say I do not have a good one. I, I tried to preach on it last year and wrote three different sermons for a campus ministry and none of them were right. And I ended up saying like, we're just going to sit with this text. And I sung the canticle, um, which I learned in 
elementary school chapel, my Episcopal elementary school. We sang it every day during Advent and you know, I just sung it to the college kids and we kind of sat with it. It's like, what, what are these words? So I'm not, I'm going to bow out of uh, how to preach this one. Well, I guess what I would be curious about is um, how courageous are our preachers willing to be? Mm-hmm. You know, are, if, if you're a courageous preacher and you're willing to make people a little squirmy, go for it. This text invites that, you know, um, make the mighty uncomfortable if that's the congregation you're preaching to. Mm, okay. Amen. Um, and if, if you're preaching to a congregation or a group that is typically in oppressed categories, this is without a doubt, good news. You can talk about that fear and the uncertainty and yet how to remain hopeful and faithful um, and know that God's still at work. Right. Um, but if you're in a, if you're used to being in the comfortable position, uh, this is an opportunity to, to make people squirm. And, um, and that's always good news also, uh, because it, it helps us to work on our own awareness of our privilege. It helps us to work on our awareness of the way we engage and interact with the world around us and those who do not have the benefits of the privilege that we might enjoy. Um, and it may go so far for those who are particularly self-aware in our pews. Um, it may be that moment that triggers them into action. And, and that's what we're always hoping for, right? We're always hoping for that one nugget that will push somebody to put their faith into action. And, um, and this is an opportunity to challenge that comfort. Um, you know, and I think, I think too, that there's like Rowan was saying, I mean, you can, you can spend your life working on just this text and never get it exactly right because your audience might be changing and, and all that, but there's so much good stuff to chew on and just to, to ponder and wonder about. And I think part of our work as, as preachers, as leaders is to invite people to not have an easy answer and to, sit with it and to chew on it and figure out where am I in this Mm. and what am I being called to do in this moment? So one of the things I really like about this um, passage and that I oftentimes will bring up when I preach on this text is I like to ask the question, where are the edges around your understanding of God? Um, Where do those edges need to be pushed further out? Uh, for me, I feel like Mary is is making a testimony here. I like to, I sometimes call this Mary's um, anti-fascist manifesto. Um, <laughs> awesome, it is. Um, and so, and so, and what she's also testifying to is that God is big. God is tre- you know tremendous, the size of the Grand Canyon, and if not bigger, the size of a galaxy. And Mary can testify to that with authority because Mary has had an experience with this big God, this big God that has so deeply lifted her from her, um, her reality into a new, a new way of being, right? Um, and that, so she's praising God. And so, and I, so I like to sometimes say that the, the mother of prophecy is praise, um, 
Because when we reside in that space of the experience that we have had with God, we can't help but testify to the truth of that relationship that we have with that experience. And from that place, that motivates us to want to go forth and say, no, that's not what's originally a part of the dream that God has put into this place and put into this world. This is not the, that's not a part of the story. And um, I like to say this is a part, this is an example of Mary controlling the narrative. Um, for me, like when I want to preach on this text, I want to rem- remind people that capitalism has taught us that Christianity is supposed to be like a bumper sticker theology or a, um, you know, those really nice memes that you see on Facebook or Instagram that have these really pretty photos and everything that have a nice little quote um, and, uh, and it makes you feel all fuzzy and happy inside. And all of that's nice. And sometimes, you know, there are days where you need a really big cup of coffee and all of those memes, like, you know, you just need all of it uh, because it's just one of those days. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is disruptive. It's defiance. It's, um, it's rude. Um, it's not respectable. The gospel calls us to confront those things that are not of God and blow them up. I'm glad you're here as a non-Episcopalian saying all this, because <laughs> when the Episcopalians say it, we just get accused of making up our own version of Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, you're, you're validating us. <laughs> Well, I'm well. I'm glad, and uh, and I'm happy to say it because I enjoy saying it. Um, I, I, you know, I really think that the the gospel and Mary's Mary's embodiment here of what it means to be um, a prophet. That's the way. I, I mean, I don't I don't know any other way to put it. I I I think we need to get on board. We're behind the track. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think about like if I was going to preach this, think about like where your congregation is at, like both individuals in your congregation, where are they in the story? You will have some Marys who may be contemplating something that they know they're called to do, that they're a little bit afraid of doing, that they maybe need to say yes to. And, or maybe you as a congregation are called to some new ministry that you're kind of scared to undertake and there's fear about Mm -hmm. it, but you know, that's what you're called to do. I think a lot of people um, were afraid to put Black Lives Matter posters up on their um, church walls for fear of what might happen. And some things people did put them up and did have things happen. And so thinking about sort of where people are at in that story, and maybe there's some, you know, Mary's in the room, or maybe there's some angels in the room calling folks to change and transition. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about Isaiah. Um, this uh, particular passage, I think, is is wonderful, and it gives us a lot of hope or, or you know, conversation about hope. And so um what is some good news that needs to be brought to the oppressed right now? Can I answer that by also using just a little bit more of the Magnificat? You can do whatever you like. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, I'll connect it. I promise. Um, uh, I think the good news that the oppressed, which I would put myself into that category as a queer person with disabilities, um, Mexican-American, um, I think the good news is that I'm willing to show up for you. And I'm willing to get not only in the mess, but to get in the way for you. Um, 
and I, I say that by, you know, I remember once I was meditating on, because, you know, in the tradition of the church, we sing the Magnificat during evening prayer. So it's usually the, it's usually the, always the thing that's on my mind after Vespers is over. Um, I mean, I, I go into thinking about it at night. Um, and I remember once I was thinking about this question of if God casts the mighty down from their thrones and lifts up the lowly, how is it that God is casting me down? Mm. And uh, because there are times where we are the mighty, uh, whether we knew it or not. Um, and for me, some years ago, that inspired me uh, to claim the places where I needed to be cast down so that the lowly could be lifted up. Um, and that was what inspired me to take a vow of nonviolence. Um, to take a vow of committing to saying, I need to be mindful about my thought, words, and deeds and my relationship to targeted communities and with targeted communities um, so that I don't reproduce or continuate harm. Um, and that, for me, the rubber hit the road when, uh, for me in that regard by saying that I was going to commit to living simply um, by living under the poverty line. Um, so I live off of $250 every month um, and uh, make less than 6000 a year. And um, that was a, an intentional thing that I chose to do because I wanted to be able to say, um, I wanted there to be some level of um, risk-taking um, and also some level of being like, I'm going to be in this with you. And, um, and I'm, I'm willing to take on whatever burden that is. And um, so I guess for me, that's, that's good news that I would like to hear people say that, you know, I took these steps so that I could be in this with you, not just show up every once in a while. Jerry, I feel like you just uh, challenged us all to a gauntlet, you know? <laughs> Like, how are, now I'm uncomfortable, right? <laughs> so, so thank you for preaching the gospel. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, so bridging that back to Isaiah, right? Um, it's so easy for us to sit in that posture of we're going to be the prophet when we're not willing to also live that mm -hmm. in reality. Okay. So you're living that in reality, right. By the choices that you have made. And so how do we, how do we engage our communities, our faith communities in a way that doesn't shame them into feeling bad that, mm -hmm. that they're, you know, perhaps maybe not the oppressed, um, but rather like Rowan was talking about, how do we, how do we level the field? Right. How how do we uh, raise up the brokenhearted? How do we how do we liberate the captives of every kind of ism, every kind of oppression um, or be willing to let go of our privilege, which is really scary for so many people. Mm. Right. Um, so now I have to think about this some more. Thank you. I was thinking about what you said when you talked about. Um, I can't remember how you worded it, but kind of like the, when have I been brought low or when do I need to be brought low? And it kind of, in the Isaiah passage, it says something, the earth 
brings forth its shoots. And if you look like in a different passage, it talks about like out of the stump of Jesse, the shoot will come out. And sometimes I think about those times Mm -hmm. when I've like had those really difficult experiences, like being homeless or whatever. Those were the times that I kind of grew and transformed the most. And I wonder sometimes, you know, our church, there was like, our church is dying or we have low numbers or whatever. I wonder if that's calling us to a new way of ministry or a new way of growing or a new way of living, Mm. new way of praying or a new way of being Christians. I mean, if we're an Easter people, we've got to get a little bit more comfortable with the notion that the church might have to die first Mm -hmm. to see what comes next. And there's a lot of fear and anxiety around that. But if you look at where the prophets are today, those people who are doing the work to free the captive, to comfort the afflicted, they're very often not in the church. They're very often really far away from the church and would take offense if you called what you were do what they were doing gospel work. Mm. But they're they're out there and they're doing it. And I think one thing we can do to live into this Isaiah passage in particular is you know, preach on these saints who are not doing this work because God has called them to it. They're doing it because it's the right thing to do and they don't need God to call them to it. Mm-hmm. They know it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think as Christians, as a Christian personally, I need a little extra support. I need God to remind me that this is how we people, this is how we live in community with other people and how we take care of each other. But there are folks out there who are just doing it. And there was a, I think it was a Pew study that came out relatively recently about how the numbers of teenagers who go to church has stayed relatively steady, but they are finding their spiritual fulfillment in social justice movements, in showing up at Black Lives Matter protests, in listening to the prophets share their stories in the midst of tear gas. Yeah. And it's hard for us in the Episcopal church. And there are exceptions. I know some of them personally, uh, there, there are exceptions to that in the church, but a lot of us are really afraid of it. And that's not what people see. Um, Winona LaDuke came to my seminary, to Union uh, Seminary, when I was a student and talked about her time at Standing Rock as a water protector and about how, in her words, the only church that showed up were the Unitarian Universalists. And then mm-hmm. the Episcopalian in me went, wait a minute, <laughs> I have so many colleagues who are out here on the front lines who are doing this work, who are standing with you. But it was interesting to me who got noticed and who didn't as doing this from a religious you know, point of view. I can hope that Winona Duke didn't notice the Episcopalians because they were just doing the right thing and not making a big deal out of it. <laughs> That's like the charitable interpretation <laughs> of what I, in my heart of hearts, I hope for. Um, mm-hmm. But what was also likely true is that there were a lot of people talking big talk and not actually putting their bodies mm-hmm. out there the way that you do, Jerry. And it, it brings up, uh, and I, I, I'm, I don't share that to be like boastful by no means because uh, it's not easy. So I wouldn't want to boast about it. <laughs> uh, it is quite terrifying. I mean, I've talked to Shaniqua about this, that, um, you know, there are days where I'm like, you know what, this is just, this is too much. I'm just going to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to stop doing everything I'm doing. I'm just going to go find a job and 
you know, work nine to five and start a family and make millions of dollars and I'll be fine. And, and if somebody else can do all of this stuff for me. Um, and of course, I just think about that just for a moment and then be like, no, that's okay. That sounds super boring. <laughs> Why does anybody do that? <laughs> um, but, you know, it also brings up the question to me too of, you know, when Jesus declared the spirit of the Lord is upon me, right? This is the text. Um, to preach, uh, what, is the, what does it say? Uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me uh, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good tidings to the poor, liberty to the captives and all the. So for me, like, it's this question of, this is not a political, this is not a partisan thing. This is a political thing. We need to get over that. Um, but at the same time, like, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is, this is like our work. And if we are going to be claim we are Christians, followers of the anointed one, then to be anointed, we need to proclaim liberty to the captives. We need to figure out ways as a church that we break open the prison doors and set people free, whether that's quite literally a prison, which I do think we should abolish all prisons, but, um, but also metaphorical prisons, like the prison of the gender binary, the, the prison of patriarchy, of white supremacy, like, we need to blow all that up. <laughs> and, uh, and then maybe if we do that, maybe then we can begin to touch the hem of the garment of the God who says, I am there with you getting beat up, getting sprayed with pepper spray, getting called the N-word. I'm there with you, but I'm not only just there with you, I also have the final say that indeed I am an overcomer and therefore you are as well. But we got to go through this before we can get to the glory. We all need our day at the cross. Yeah. Or lifetime, depending. Yeah. So a lot of Isaiah was talking about exile and, um, or, you know, it was like the time of exile then the time just after exile. Who are folks that you think are in exile today that we need to be thinking about? Who are the exiles of right now? There are so many, there are so many exiles. I mean, in one way or another, everybody is an exile. The white supremacist so-called Christians who have perverted the faith mm -hmm. to be something utterly unrecognizable as the gospel are in exile, I think. They're in exile from God's love and the way that God's love is made incarnate through doing these things that are right and trying to level the playing field so that when the mighty have to fall, it's not very far. I think that Black, Brown, Indigenous people in this country are in exile, uh, often literally, uh, for in the case of Indigenous people whose lands have been stolen. Mm. I think that everyone who has been hurt by the church, especially over sexuality and gender expression are in exile from loving community. I mean, there's there's exile for everybody and none of us have made it to the new Jerusalem that God promises us in Revelation. We're not there yet. No one's there yet. Even the people who think that their little commune in a corner of West Virginia has made it, mm -hmm. they have not made it. Not till we're all there. Mm -hmm. So I think I think we're all in exile. Mm. 
Well, and that's, uh, thank you, Rowan, because that's exactly what I've been thinking about, you know, as I read and reread and reread feminist and, and liberation theology, you know, liberation theology is aspirational at best. Yeah. You know, we, we are never fully realizing that liberation. Um, and, and some of that is our own hard heartedness, right? Um, and some of that is the hard heartedness of others that is afflicted upon us. Um, and, and so there's some piece of this that while everything can feel at times bleak and hopeless and that there are, as you said, that the, those in exile are all of us, you know, to varying degrees, the hope is that we will see that leveled playing field, that new Jerusalem, we will see the kingdom of God realized um, in a way where there is no struggle and strife. Um, and, and like, we have to keep our eye on that, you know, kind of like when Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem, we, you know, we're all turning our face that way um, because we're hoping for mm. something better. Right. Um, the challenge is persevering in the midst of that unrealized uh, liberation and hope, you know, um, and I struggle because it, it, we, you know, we've all talked about how we can win our moments when, when we need to be brought down, as Jerry said, and moments when we need to be lifted up or lift up others. And then I think about like, you know, look at this Isaiah text and the day of vengeance yeah. of our God. Like, it's hard for me to think about a vengeful God, you know, um, because then I get into this place of like, well, shame on those other people. Let's blame all these other people for our issues and stuff like that, yeah. which is like a really great place to be, um, you know, <laughs> when you when you don't want to own your own role in the oppression of others. Right. When you don't want to own your own role in in the ways that that you dominate. And um, so I don't. I don't quite know what to do with that vengeful God unless I'm willing to understand that I may be the recipient of some of that vengeance. Mm. I think the evil one just walks among us and takes up residence in certain people at certain times because there are actions that human beings commit or cause to be committed that I can't explain otherwise yeah. and again this is my catholic showing but <laughs> there's no other way for me to conceptualize some of the evil in this world knowing that god does truly love everybody no matter what um you know if you can find one soul in nineveh nineveh will be saved but there are people who do things that i think deserve vengeance because they're so harmful. I just, I, I am very careful about blaming people for being inherently evil. Like, I think that there's something, I, I don't know, I've got to say there's got to be an outside force. There's something else at play. Um, because there is a path to forgiveness for everybody. There is a path to love. And sometimes it takes more than a stirring sermon or a Christian community to bring these mighty down from their thrones. Mm -hmm where they you know, need something a little bigger. So if we've talked kind of about who's in exile, um, think about a time when you felt absolute welcome or when you, when you felt absolutely 
accepted or when you felt absolute love? And what is like maybe one thing that happened that you can recall that made it feel that way? So I'll, I'll take a leap here. <laughs> um, and this is going to sound really churchy and um, cheesy, probably, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's okay. So, so I was not always an Episcopalian. I was not a Catholic. I was um, a Southern Baptist born and raised and, um, and then spent some time in, in assemblies of God and some other. Oh, we got some Pentecostal in the room. <laughs> there, there's, yeah, but I don't, I don't own that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I will say is that the first time, uh, cause, cause coming into the Episcopal church in and of itself was a discernment for me. Um, and so I didn't take communion right away. Like I, I wanted to be respectful of, of um, the fact that I needed to learn some things. Um, and, uh, but that first time that um, I received communion, I had probably the closest thing I've ever had to, to a spiritual love experience where I felt in that moment for that 30 seconds, you know, or, or maybe even less um, as that bread was put into my hand, that holy crap i'm worthy of love i'm worthy of god's love um i'm not a complete and total failure uh, of a human being that i really am part of god's good creation and that doesn't happen very often mm-hmm. yeah i find this question really hard um I'm kind of disappointed that I do, <laughs> but I, but I'm just being honest. Uh, uh, I think Christians. I remember this. There's a video of Bishop Barbara uh, Harris on YouTube of her talking about uh, her experience of when she was elected and consecrated um, the first woman bishop in the Anglican Communion, and she she the interviewer asked her a question about. Um, all the death threats that she got. And she laughed and she said, you know, nobody can hate better than Christians. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's true. I think we have so, we have turned hate into a sacrament, mm-hmm. you know, into a rite. Um, we've sanctified it. Uh, we've, uh, we've turned it into a stained glass window. Um, so that's why, you know, it's such an important thing for us to talk about radical welcome. Um, I like Stephanie Speller's definition of radical welcome, that it's a boundary crossing action. Um, it's uh, so anyway, but I, I don't I want to don't want to go down that road. But uh, I, I have an issue with this question because I feel like I haven't experienced that in quite a while. So I don't remember what it feels like. Mm. Um, and I think, and I've been reflecting on this, particularly around like denominationalism. I'm, a, I'm not really a big denominational person. Um, my work is very ecumenical, very interfaith. I work with people who are churched, who are done with church, or who have no church at all, um, and everybody in between. And it's all a beautiful um, conglomeration of everything. Um, and it's fabulous. It's a wonderful uh, rainbow. Um, but for me, um, I feel like one of my issues with church, and as a priest, this is something I try to keep at the forefront of my mind so that I don't imitate this. Um, but 
I'm a really grumpy person. <laughs> <laughs> I am me too. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I am really moody. I I live with my emotions on my sleeve, and I'm very proud of it. I'm a Sagittarius. I'm very fiery. I am quite fabulous and quite sassy. So, um, so sometimes people don't like that. Surprisingly, you know. I can't imagine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes, you know, at church they really like you when you're nice and you pray really. You know, you know all your prayers, especially if you're Catholic and you can do the entire mass from memory. Um, which I can do in Latin as well. Um, that's how Catholic I am. And um, <laughs> but you know, they never like you when you have a meltdown in the middle of church. Mm. That's why we are terrible at welcoming people who have differing mental capacities in church. Mm. Who does like you if your emotions are on your sleeve? The kids. Yes. Because they know that you're not lying to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I also am very grumpy and am, uh, I have very strong feelings about things in the world that are right and that are wrong. Yes. Uh, like when you walk up the stairs and down the stairs and going in and out of the subway in New York City, up is on one side, down is on the other. Yes. Doing it any other way is wrong. Uh, yes. But my wife, my wife teases me about it. And I think is one of the reasons I've been so successful as a children and youth minister is because the kids know exactly what I'm thinking and feeling and they know that I am not, you know, trying to pull something on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also let them show their emotions. And when anybody in the church has a meltdown, no matter their age or ability, that's fine. They're just being open. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Jerry. I, I just have to laugh and I it's making me miss my kids um, and mm. being with them in person. But yeah. The the place that I felt the most welcome, um, speaking of Stephanie Spellers and radical welcome, is the Crossing Boston, which is the congregation that she founded uh, mm. when she was here. And it is still the only church I have ever been in where not only am I not the only trans person in the room, I am never the only trans person in the room. Mm. In the two plus years I've been part of the congregation since I moved to Boston. I mean, that's it's what I call my extracurricular church. <laughs> uh, it's not the one I work for, but it's the one that I go to and do work for for free. And it's such a different feeling to not be alone on the margin and to be welcomed in not not in spite of but because of being on the margin mm. um you know you're asking us a time when we felt this radical love this radical acceptance radical welcome that phrase has come up so if if we have felt it how do we hear from Isaiah and and therefore from Jesus uh how do we hear that part of our call is to bind up the brokenhearted? Mm. Right. Isn't this, exa- I mean, these stories that we're sharing of our own experiences of welcome, that's our binding up, right? So how are we binding up others or, or at least helping to bind up others as opposed to oppressing them, right? That's our challenge because if we believe that we are called to be the hands and feet of Christ, as St. Teresa said, um, then 
then that's part of our work too, right? Are finding those opportunities. And maybe it's in, you know, the simple thing of saying, hey, can you play the music? Or, you know, uh, you're not the only one who's trans here and let me introduce you to others. Um, you know, part of our binding up is is maybe to to help others experience that moment of love and grace mm. that, that we experience, but in their own way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a big, a big call. And I feel like I need to tell this story. So uh, I was thinking, it reminded me of the Magnificat, but also this passage from Isaiah. I, when I was first doing my field education in San Francisco, we were doing a service in a homeless shelter and I was doing healing prayer. And this woman came up and I was like, what do you want me to pray for? And she said, I want you to pray that my social security comes through. And I was like, and to me, that felt very prosperity gospel. And I was like, mm, I don't know if Jesus works that way. You know, I was like, but let's pray. And so then that Magnificat came up. And that's how I started. Oh, God, you know, who who will feed the hungry with good things. And and I was like, who am I to judge about? You know, this is a person living well, well, well below the poverty line. And that could be really good news for them. Maybe it's not for someone like Joel Osteen or something, but, but it <laughs> definitely could be for her. And she came back the next week and she's like, it worked. We got to do something else. And so she like comes back <laughs> It was an interesting experience. So um, we're almost out of time, but I want to just, I feel i feel guilty if we didn't talk about um, one or two thoughts about um, either John the Baptist or the passage. Um, the thing I always remember telling people is you have to read John like he's writing poetry and not necessarily like he's trying to write concrete, uh, straightforward type of stuff. I'm going to give the... Uh ever present and necessary reminder that whenever the Bible talks about light and you're tempted to talk about darkness, interrogate that feeling and be very, very careful mm. and know that light and darkness do not have to be in opposition. Mm -hmm. Just in the, in the time that we are in, don't, don't do more harm. And it's, it's really easy to slip with that, especially when the text is, Jesus came as a witness to testify to the light that he was not the light, but he came to testify or John was not the light, but came to testify to the light. This is the annual, annual reminder to be very, very careful. Mm. Yeah. Just going off of that, I think that's a great point, especially when you're preparing a sermon on this particular text of, you know, I like to say you can't have a nice painting without light and shadow. It's, it certainly won't be very much depth to it. Uh, it'd be very flat. And where are we pointing, you know, where are we pointing people to? Or who are we pointing people to? I was thinking about what voices do we hear crying out from the wilderness? Who are those voices? And um, maybe also thinking about, you know, if the baptism is about forgiveness of sins and, you know, sin means changing your way of thinking, what kind of thinking do we need to be, what are, kind of thinking are we called to change or be transformed by? Another thought is thinking about who in our communities, in our lives, has and lives with the conviction that John does. So I really admire John. John has absolute trust that this is the way and that he recognizes that he's not worthy to untie the thong of Jesus's sandal, which Jesus tells him he's being ridiculous. But his absolute utter conviction and commitment is so holy and you can be convicted and committed to all sorts of things, but kind of looking at who who is, who lives like John the Baptist and to what end. Well, and, and thinking about what 
Shaniko's question is about, you know, who are the voices or where are the voices that are crying out in the wilderness? You know, to put that in our current context, you know, are we believing the stories of women who, you know, talk about their abuse and violence that they've experienced? Are we believing uh, the stories of black and brown people uh, who talk about police violence and um, are we believing the stories of our LGBTQ plus sisters and brothers who talk about discrimination? Mm. And, um, you know, so so it's not just like, who are the voices? It's do we believe the voices? Right. Um, and and what's it going to take for us to listen to that voice? You know, like how many times do we have to hear it before we legitimize it? And that's part of what John the Baptist faced, right? Is like, he was out there calling people vipers and simultaneously eating honey and locusts. So he's not exactly a credible source, you know, when you think about, um, you know, the guy standing out on the street corner, do you really listen to everything that the guy on the street corner says? Probably not, right? Because we've been conditioned that way, which means then we start calling into question everyone who doesn't tow the line mm. of what is considered appropriate yes. or normative. Mm-hmm. So what's it going to take? You know, how many voices do we have to hear before we believe it and, and become convicted um, or experience that, that metanoia to change, you know, that's all I got. I got, I have no answer. <laughs> Those are some good questions. I don't have an answer. I, I got lots of questions, but no answers. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> that's what the prophetic voices do. Sometimes we ask questions. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes we just maybe put those, plant those ideas in people's minds. And often, right, the prophetic voices are the ones who aren't listened to, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all the time we have for today. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Anna, Rowan, and Jerry. Thanks to our production team, especially Chris and Allie. If you were moved or touched by what you heard today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, 
and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.